Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Standing on the high ground amidst a sea of COVID, it's election shock therapy. Pandemic edition. <laughs> Guys, how you feel? We've had a lot of pandemic editions, haven't we, Chris? So and so many more to come. <laughs> um, Matt, when do you think you're going to actually get a jab in the arm? Like, what month do you think you'll actually receive a jab in the arm? I mean, my it seems like maybe April is when they'll begin to be more widely available. Um, and I'm not sure how quickly I will line up. Um, not because I think, you know, the, you know, the vaccine is full of microchips that will, you know, connect me to 5G <laughs> so I can be tracked by, you know, the, by the deep state. Um, this you know, brought to you by QAnon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, a, so there's two things a little unsure of what, how widely it is going to be available. Um, you know, and I'm also in a lower risk pool, so I don't right. have to be like right. the first one to get it. The second thing is, you know, um, there's no way to, um, fast track the testing of long-term impacts of vaccines. And so, um, I might hold back a month or so and, and see kind of what happens. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll definitely want to get a vaccine this year. So, so, so there's been some preferably talk, the first half of this year. There's been some talk as a public service, um, uh, as a public service that certain celebrities would get the vaccine publicly on, you mm -hmm. know, on camera so that to demonstrate its, its safetyness, apparently Barack Obama and Hillary yeah, Clinton have already volunteered. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you could really turn this into sort of a fundraiser, right? I mean, like if you had Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, you, you could auction off the right to jab them with a needle. Um, and that would be, maybe raise some money for, no, okay. Right. Wow. That's an unexpected turn. I mean, and George, George O. U. Bush has also volunteered. So, yeah. you know, we got a little bipartisanship going exactly. here. Exactly. Yeah, it was uh, no. Clinton, George W. and Obama that were kind of like, yeah, we'll go get stuck together or whatever. I, mean, yeah. I, I, I know you I do like the idea of like a little video presentation where you have the three the three ex presidents, right? Going all getting together, stuck at the same time. Um, yep. to to get their vaccination. Like they all just kind of walk in together, you know, maybe not arm in arm because of COVID, but um, at least together, right? right, and and are kind of bantering as they're getting their shots. Like this could be fun. Yeah, that could be a good way of doing it. So, I now that said, and I, I agree with you that I think that actually is a, a potentially really useful thing to do. What what non political American celebrities or people or leaders would you want to see get vaccinated that would instill public confidence? Non-political. Everyone's political these days. Gosh. Okay. Well, someone who doesn't hold who doesn't hold or has held office. I mean, Fauci's an obvious one, right? Yeah. Yeah. How about like LeBron James? Who is political? Very, but he's not an office no. holder unless no, you count not. unless you count the Lakers. 
<laughs> uh, not exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, like, uh, you know, sports teams, like, that could be important. Um, mm -hmm. I think prominent, like, church leaders, right, could be important as well. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Members of the clergy, right, who hold prominent sort of public positions, that could that could be important, I think. So, yeah. I think somebody that could be potentially helpful, given the fact of where the skepticism about the vaccine lies, someone like Francis Collins. Mm -hmm. um, who's not nearly so well known, but is a scientist and um, a devout evangelical Christian, uh, mm -hmm. might be somebody who would be a, uh, a really good figure for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like Franklin Graham, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, we'll see if that any of that comes <laughs> to pass. Um, we are not here talking entirely about the vaccine, although I am excited. I think April is a nice target date. I'm circling too, but I think it, it very, very well could likely be more like May or June is my suspicion. Yeah, that's possible. But, um, but some people may be vaccinated even before the turn of the year, which would be great. So we're here to talk more so about um, this is, by the way, this is our post-election uh, 2020 and beyond um, part two of our mini series. And we're going to focus today on the legacy of Donald Trump in the Republican Party. And next time, I think, if our if our pattern holds, we'll be talking about uh, the Biden administration. But today we're looking backwards and forwards, thinking about the long-term legacy of Donald Trump. And it looks like it could be long-term because uh, Donald <laughs> Trump appears to Andy's great predictive uh, success, like he's <laughs> almost ready to announce that he is going to run in 2024, Yeah, which, is weird because he still hasn't conceded the 2020 right. election yet, right. but um, yeah. he is he is planning to announce his, his ability to run in 2024. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I want to explore that. But let's talk just really quick quickly about some of the recent news events. Um, yeah. The Trump uh, legal team, uh, primarily led by Rudy Giuliani, um, has been uh, launching a number of of lawsuits, most of which have been dismissed, uh, claims of fraud, which have not been substantiated. And this, there's still some, some good election stuff going on out there, especially in Georgia. So gentlemen, um, is the current behavior of Donald Trump and his legal team contesting the 2020 election hurting his chances in 2024? I don't know. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so far off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. I'm not sure like whether, whether he has a viable chance in 2024 is I think a really open question for a number of reasons, but uh, I don't, I don't, I just think political memories are so short these days that I'm not sure how much it matters. Um, this is already very much his brand of, you know, sort of saying false things and questioning, you know, frankly, pretty well established realities. And so that doesn't seem to have hurt him very much. Um, so I'm not sure why it would start now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it could, I don't think it'll hurt him too much about just the population. I mean, those people who are really in the bag for him, you know, they're still in the yeah. bag. Those people who really hate him will still hate him. There might be a slice of the country that sort of supported him, but might look back and like, Oh, that was a pretty ugly sort of, sort of post yeah. post election episode. And I think this will hurt his legacy in some sense. Um, yeah. I'm more just interested in like, okay, so you know, is Trump, you know, sort of losing allies amongst Republican officials? I mean, there's obviously some Republican, we can talk about this, some Republicans. You mean like still, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia? Well, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, 
there's Republicans who, um, you know, are still sort of going to be cowed by him and we worried about, you know, Trump and his ability to rally the base to sort of primary them, right, in the Republican primaries. But I also wonder if he's losing some allies, right? I mean, he's basically anyone who who disagrees and thinks that wasn't fraudulent, it wasn't stolen. Um, Trump basically goes out and attacks them as being in on the conspiracy, right? And some of it is just nuts. Right. And so like, I wonder like, well, are some of these Republicans are going to say, you know, like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to carry water for Trump in 2024. I'm not going to go campaign for him. I'm not going right. to, you know, like, I wonder if he's losing some allies within the GOP on this, burning some bridges, and that might have kind of an impact. Yep. Yep. I think that's fair. Is this now? I would have said on the on November fourth. I would have said that the chances of Democrats controlling the Senate were functionally all approaching zero. Um, now there's there, there's there's a pathway for Democrats to control the Senate. It involves them winning both Georgia Senate runoff races. Yeah, but. Um, the two Republicans nearly won a majority in a uh, jungle in a, in a, a jungle election, um, and uh, now they're running straight up heads up against the Democrats. The Democrats would have to massively outperform their November third results uh, to, to recapture this. But as as Trump's rancor towards uh, Georgia officials and questioning the election hurting Republican turnout in Georgia, is this? Is this a problem? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's possible, right? I mean, because there were some, I mean, it's pretty hilarious. Like just in the past few days, you know, there's been some of the most diehard sort of Trump supporters are coming out and they're saying, actually went out and gave public speeches like, don't vote in the Georgia primary or excuse me, the Georgia runoff, all you Republicans, to send a message that we think the election system is rigged and whatever. And then, you know, a whole bunch of other Republicans were like, whoa, 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 including like Newt Gingrich and others like, wait a minute, we, we have to get, so like all of a sudden you're seeing the messaging starting to shift, right? Yeah. So, so it turns out, you know, unbelievably, very believably, that if you convince, you know, all the Republic, a lot of Republicans that the system is fundamentally broken, they may not go vote. Right. And so you might not win next time because they don't turn out. And as we know, you know, turning out the base is really important in these sorts of yeah. situations, especially in these sort of lower, lower turnout elections, right? Getting your base out is so important. And so like, it'll be interesting if this backfires. I think if, if the Republicans lose, it might be because of this, right? And that will really hurt Trump's legacy. Um, I think like he will get the blame, I think rightfully so for some of that. But, but of course, you know, there's a lot of people who, you know, are still going to go out and vote because they think like, because Trump isn't on the ballot, right? Um, you know, it's, it's the other Republicans that are on the ballot, it's not Trump. Um, I don't think there's a huge number of people that believe the system is that rigged. So that's not a huge group, but it might be big enough to make a difference in a really close race. Right. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah. 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 It could. I mean, like, I, I think they'll end up conquering that, but we'll, we'll see. I think the bigger issue for them, it might be in, in Georgia that just frankly, like their two Senate candidates are underwhelming. Um, like I don't think David Perdue or Kelly Loeffler is all that effective. Um, I'm not sure John Ossoff and Raphael Warren are better, but um, that could hurt too. I think you know Senate candidate quality matters, and they are at best meh Republican candidates. Um, yeah. So you know I think it's, it might be difficult if they do lose to disaggregate. Like, is it Trump's fault for undermining the process and depressing turnout, 
or is it just you don't have that re really that good of Republican candidates? I do think it's interesting that we're having this double runoff. And I wonder yeah. if there will be some interactive effects there because yeah. there might be some voters, and I'm specifically thinking about, to be honest, in Georgia, African-American voters who are going to be mobilized to show up to vote for Warnock, who think, well, while I'm here, I'm just going to go ahead and vote for Ossoff also, um, right. who Ossoff normally wouldn't have gotten. And Ossoff has not a great track record. Um in um, some previous elections appealing to uh, African-Americans in, in Georgia. So that might be really help his race. Likewise, maybe there's some suburban whites who are gonna show up to vote for Ossoff, who while they're there will vote for Warnock as well. And so that might help them. I'm still pretty skeptical though. I think there's two big forces working against them. On the one hand, you get, as Matt said, much lower turnout in these runoff elections. The people who tend to vote, turn up are like people who vote in primaries. They're highly mobilized. And in in the past, at least, that has been Republicans in Georgia, not Democrats. Yep. yep. Agreed. Well, that will determine whether Mitch McConnell keeps his job or not as, <laughs> uh, uh, as leader in the Senate. And that will change a lot of things potentially in the Biden administration. Oh, but yeah. it also will really set, set up Donald Trump's 2024 prospects. I think Donald Trump really will, I think he's weirdly reliant on the 2022 um, interim races. Um, I think that if Republicans do really well, as we would kind of conventionally expect them to do in a year where the president is is not on the ticket, I think that Trump's uh, chances of running in 2024 decrease because um, he's uh, it, it, it doesn't seem like he's um, he's necessary for Republican success. On the other hand, if so, for some reason, if Biden and the Democrats are able to actually make gains in an off year election, um, you might see the part, the Republican Party, elements of the Republican Party turning back and saying, we need Trump to win. We need that yep. energy at the top. And yep. that might give him legs, but we won't know that for two years. Yes. Well, I mean, there's another way to think about 22, though, which is, I mean, if the, you know, if Trump does go out there and he is campaigning for people and he's holding these big rallies, right? And then it's like, look, see, I went and held this rally with however many people and so-and-so won, right? I mean, like that, that could give him the ability to say like, no, that's still my win, right? So I think there's a way in which he could handle it um, that could help him there. I mean, it depends on whether he wants to do that for other people. And of course, the gamble there is if you have an underwhelming election, then that might fall on him, right? Yep. Um, so it might be a matter of tea leaf reading. I mean, like, which way is this election likely to be? Do I want to stay aloof from it or jump into it? So as we plotted out this episode, um, Dear Dr. Kukum has given us what I would say, given the, it, given it's the end of the semester, has given us what I could only call a final exam question. So I'm going to throw it back in his face. I'm going to ask you guys. I'll try to answer this too. All right. Um, what exactly, four years later now, what exactly is Trumpism? And is Trumpism separate from Donald Trump? Uh, that's that's the big question we all have to answer, right? Um, so, so... Okay, I'm going to ramble a little bit. So, so Trumpism is primarily about his style and his personality, right? Um, he provides an outlet for anger and fear, um, but also positive desires for sort of an America is great and America is should be first policy, right? Um, and above all, he's authentic, or at least he appears authentic, right? So he's not a politician um, in the traditional mm -hmm. sense, in the traditional form. He's a fighter. 
Um, he's not going to put up with crap. He's not going to tiptoe around the PC culture. He's not going to lay down and take it, right? Um, uh, because he's going to insist on being civil and be a statesman and take the high road, kind of like George W. Bush, who was, you know, criticized for for sort of laying down and, and not pushing back. Um, he was a gentleman and a statesman, right, in the form of his father in that way. Whatever you might make about those policies, that was his approach. And he received a lot of criticism from from the, you know, more right wing types for that. Right. right. Trump is mm-hmm. the opposite. Right. So. So Trump is going to is going to fight. Um, and this is what a lot of the country wants, um, which is perhaps understandable in some sense. Right. So tr- Trump and the Republicans have done fairly well, perhaps in part because there's a large segment of the country that's um, fairly socially conservative. They might be economically liberal, but they're fairly socially conservative. And those who are socially conservative um, are you know, angry and worried about the disdain um, that progressives have for them and their way of life. And to some extent, you can't completely blame them. There is a lot of disdain, right? Um, and the progressive voices, <clears throat> you know, not only have the largest voice in the Democratic Party, um, but they control most of our country's big institutions, right? The majority of colleges and universities, the majority of media outlets, the majority of the entertainment industry, the majority of boardrooms of corporations and companies that control the most wealth and political influence, right? So, um, and and so people are worried about this um, and they don't appreciate being labeled racist, bigoted, backward, you know, backwater, um, Bible thumping, gun toting, blah, blah, blah. So, mm-hmm. so Trump, you know, pushes back against that. He doesn't put on airs and have mock humility like so many politicians do. He's not always seen as, and people see when politicians are calculating and trying to sort of take positions, right? Trump doesn't do that. He's authentic. What you see is what you get, right? At least theoretically, right? right. And so most people really support Trump for these reasons, and they don't really know much about his actual policy successes and failures. Um, and so, you know, I don't think there's that many Republicans that can replicate this, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's going to be a lot of imitators, perhaps, but not that many people who are, you know, successful in sort of carrying that torch. Um, so I'm not sure that Trumpism without Trump is really all that possible or likely. People didn't jump on board because of his policies, but because of what he projected, right? Um, now, to the extent, and he, but here's where I'll sort of kind of take the other side, is to the extent that Trumpism is not merely about a cult of personality. Um, Trumpism is about anti-elitism, right? And, and to some extent, right, populism right. as well. And to that extent, to the extent that Trumpism can sort of detach itself from Trump, um, Trumpism might continue, right? So this anti-elitism coupled with a sort of a rejection of sort of the hard left movement that a good chunk of the Democratic Party has taken, those two things together is what has made Trump and Republicans successful. And if they're able to continue doing that, then I think Trumpism, you know, in some form might continue. And I have more thoughts on that, but I'd love to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I think that's right, man. I think when you think about like the appeal of Trump in Trumpism, right? Um, and maybe like think about like the fact that he did a little better under uh, among minorities, right? Than some past Republicans, than Romney, for example, right? Um, why is that? I mean, I think it, it you could point to this combination of on the one hand the moral conservatism, which Trump you know is not himself, I don't think morally conservative, but but he is towed the party line in that sense. He's he's kind of gone with that and articulated that, um, and then combining that with this kind of economic populism, anti elitism. Uh, which does end up being about, you know, sort of saying things that other people don't say, which feels like championing, you know, being a champion for people who are kind of marginalized, right? And that includes not just white working class, but working class, right? Um, and that has found 
um, you know, it's found ears, right? In in places where you might not expect it to, right? Because that combination is actually pretty good. And so, you know, I, I had a, a, um, one of my grad student colleagues um, at Notre Dame, who um, she's also in political science and um, professor, and um, she's Hispanic, and she was talking about this, right? As saying like, you know, that that combo, right, actually is kind of powerful. It might be a way forward for the Republicans. Um, which, of course, don't what is not so powerful in com Hispanic communities, obviously, is all the rhetoric, right, that is really negative toward toward uh, minorities and in particular toward um, people who are, you know, who have roots in Mexico. And, and and so, like, how does how do you kind of get those good things without um, taking on all the kind of negatives of Trump? Um, but I think you're right. I mean, like, I'm just not sure that that somebody else can kind of take what Trump's done and carry it forward because I think a lot of it is bound up with who he is and his ability to articulate these things, uh, pretty, you know, kind of wild things and just to stick to them um, regardless of, you know, however many fact checkers debunk him. Right. Um, and that is weirdly part of his appeal. Andy, let me ask you a follow-up question because I think it gets to the heart of the way I'm going to cut into this. Imagine a world in which Donald Trump was just as caustic, just yep. as anti, just, just as crass, just as anti-elitist, just yep. as populist, but for reasons that we can't fully explain, does not take the uh, um, really obvious racial overtones, undertones, heck, just tones uh, that the Trump uh, that, that, he, that he's taken. Right? That he doesn't yeah. call Mexicans uh, rapists and murderers. Right? Um, right? He doesn't use those kinds of things. He basically he's. Um, he's basically magnanimous towards people on in terms of race and ethnicity and gender, but he's just anti-elitist, populist, crass. Would he have been a much more successful politician? Not president, but politician. I don't know about much more because, I mean, I think he actually has been surprisingly successful. And I think we're polarized enough that I'm not sure how much there is. But, yes, I think he would have been more successful. Would I he think have won re-election? I think there are people who are – I think he he might have. Um, you know, it, yeah, because I think that was very like there were there were definitely a subset of people who was like we cannot vote for this guy because of those attitudes, right? This is just unacceptable. Um, I think he gets closer in any case um, because I mean, like it's interesting. Like I was just looking at the the numbers again um, for the election, and boy, I mean, the president was not that far from winning, right? I mean, even though the 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 popular vote gap is pretty large, yeah. right? Um, you know, he was within a percent of being at two sixty nine. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia, right? He gets those three. It's it's a it's an electoral college tie, um, and he lost Wisconsin by 0.8 percent by 20, yep. 21,000 votes. Right. Yep. Um, that's really tight. Right. So this election looks pretty good for Biden, and in a lot of ways it was. But it's also worth noting. I mean, Trump was not that far from winning, so that's not that many people who have to be persuaded, right, yep. um, to to flip. <laughs> So here's yeah. how I'm going to explain this, and I, I hope you'll indulge me because I'm um, I'm going to use a little extended analogy here. Ooh. Are you familiar with the assassination of the Russian uh, journalist Alexei Navalny? Only in the vaguest terms. Is a this is sort of a uh, someone who became an opponent of Vladimir Putin, and Putin had him poisoned while uh, along with his daughter while they were. Uh, living uh, in in uh, the UK. So this is a big scandal in the UK okay, that yeah. Russian agents poisoned Alexei Navalny. Um, Alexei Navalny was poisoned with a, uh, a extremely virulent poison called Novichuk. Um, and that's what I want to focus on is the, is the poison Novichuk. Because I've Good. learned a little bit about... Um, uh, about the the, uh, the poison Novichuk. And I'm here to tell you that it is a... Um, 
<laughs> You're laughing. Wow. Hold on. Hold on. This isn't even the point. This is just the setup. Um, <laughs> Novichuk is a... Um, it sounds uh, unpleasant. Can I just say Novichuk? Um, yes, it is. It is very unpleasant. It will, in fact, kill you. Um, <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> but it is a... Um, it's, it's a... Um, it's a by, um, I, I, I'm actually, um, I'm going to mess up the word now. <laughs> it is a, um, it's a two-part poison. It's a, it, um, it's a bimodal poison. What that means is the way that Nova, because Novichuk is so dangerous and it's simply exposure to about a, um, a pencil, um, a pencil eraser's worth of the liquid is sufficient to kill you. You don't even need to ingest it. It just needs to sit on your skin. Wow. Um, uh, it has to be stored in two parts, two separate chemicals, which when mixed together make Novichuk. And so the delivery system usually is some kind of a process by which one thing contains the outer element, something else that has the inner chemical, and then the whole thing is sort of smashed or, 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 or crushed to mix the two together to create the chemical so that hopefully the assassin isn't killed along with the, along with the subject. Yeah. Well, I think Donald Trump is to Trumpism as the uh, bimodal <laughs> arrangement of Novichuk is. Wow. It's both parts are necessary to be effective, but they're um, separately, they're still, uh, they're, they're distinct and, and separable. So there is a, 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 a political ideology or a political sort of approach that, that is populism in the, and it has worked in the United States, but it has right. not worked particularly well in the post-Cold War era we have not seen populist candidates achieve great success. I grant what Matt is saying about uh, popular dissatisfaction with uh, the status quo, with globalization, with being feeling left behind. And those mm -hmm. elements have been there for a long period of time. But people have generally said at the end of the day, I'm still going to vote for George W. Bush, who's not a populist. Right. I'm still going to vote for Bill Clinton, who's not a populist. Uh, Ross Perot got 10%. He was kind of a populist. But that's about where it ended, right? Um, but if you take this other chemical and it's the unique chemical of Donald Trump, who is uniquely famous, and that's the important part, he needed to be not just another politician. He needed to be somebody who had a great deal of notoriety and a massive public persona outside of politics, which allowed him then to say the kinds of things that politicians don't usually say. Yeah. And to still have yeah. and and to not be dismissed. Imagine if well, we're about to test this, right? Because Tom Cotton is mm -hmm. not a famous person, no. but Tom Cotton is about to start saying some of the things that Donald Trump says. Let's see how that works out for him. My sense is he won't get nearly as much traction as Donald Trump does because yeah. Trump was uniquely capable of saying the things that he said. Yeah. Um, and so I I think Trumpism isn't possible without Donald Trump. Populism, even sort of staunchly anti-immigrant populism, anti-elitist populism is possible, but will not be as uniquely successful as Trumpism was, but you need Donald Trump to do that. And I'm sure, I think you actually even need Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump Jr. or Ivanka yeah. Trump is sufficient to make that happen. Right, I think that's right. I mean, like what you really were, the next stage is probably not like Trumpism with not Trump, but like, can somebody make, you know, cottonism happening or Haleyism or whatever the next one is, right? I mean, um, because that's, 
that's you know it is it is deeply personalistic. I mean, and we we had this in you know in African politics, right? This was a common feature of early African politics where you get leaders coming in and they're trying to establish this personal brand, right? So you have you know Kwame Nkrumah in in Ghana, right? It's Nkrumahism, but what is it about? It's about Nkrumah, right? I mean, like what are the ideas in Nkrumahism? It was always very difficult for anyone to actually articulate those, right? But what they clearly centered around was Kwame Nkrumah in power, right? And and that's really you know what you get with Trump too. I think is it's you know Donald Trump in power, um, and he is he is the man, right? I mean it's you know one more kind of foreign analogy, right? But I mean it's like Juan Perón in Argentina, right? Mm -hmm. Perón had this an you know analogy he would tell people like I am the conductor right and so you have this image of like the orchestra but I'm the one who makes it work I'm the one who can get them to play together without me you know that doesn't work right and Peronism has found a way forward without Peron but it is also very different um and it's certainly true that in his life it's centered around him right for 30 years you can't get around you know Juan Peron yeah, I mean, the, yeah, it, this is I mean, this is really good because a lot of times populism, um, for it to sort of work electorally, does require this sort of larger than life sort of personality at the top who receives support, right? And that that is a feature, a common feature of populism, and it's true. Like, you know, to some extent, in order for you know, in order for populism to work, you need someone who has that sort of brand power, right? And politicians can create brands for themselves, but it's it's hard to break into sort of the larger national consciousness, right? But Trump had, you know, 100% name recognition um, and a sort of an aura about himself before he even dove into electoral politics, right? Um, right. So, yeah. Although I would say though, I mean, so, kind of about the populism angle, like I do wonder if, I mean, so there is this growing sense of anti-elitism that is sort of, and I think we need to distinguish between this anti-elitist movement um, and maybe sort of this anti-progressive elitist movement and maybe sort of, we need to distinguish that from the sort of the economic nationalism and the other sorts of more commonly populist policies, right? Um, because, mm -hmm. There's a lot of there's some interesting polling out there that shows that um, that even amongst Trump's base, there's not actually a huge amount of support um, for these sort of economic nationalist policies. Um, I mean, there is a part of Trump's base that does fear immigrants, that wants tariffs, that you know, blah blah blah. But yeah. but there's a lot of Trump's base um, that you know actually. Um, that actually is fine with free trade as long as we're dealing with bad actors like China. That is fine with immigration so long as there's, you know, it's it's law abiding and we have a secure border, but it's fine with immigration, right? right. Um, you know, so there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a deep entrenched support for these economic nationalist policies and anti-immigrant policies. What there is, I, I would say, is more of an entrenched anti-elite, um, anti-progressive elite. Um, right. Right. Sort of, and then this is borne out really interestingly. Like it turns out that the college-educated, non-working class Trump supporters, right, are actually more ideological and anti-elitist than the working-class Trump voters. There's some interesting polling on that, right? So I think mm -hmm. I think this is the enduring sort of part of Trumpism, um, and I think we have to sort of you know, parse these things out. All right, Matt. Since you mentioned enduring Trumpism. Uh, this is the other classic question that's going to be that uh, bedeviling uh, political scientists for at least for the next probably the next decade. Is Trump uh, inducing a Republican realignment? 
I, I don't know. I mean, you do see some, I mean, we've talked about this before. You see real shifts in like the rural urban divide. You're starting to see um, Republicans start, start to make some head, you know, some headway um, into some, you know, getting some more minorities on board. Um, and we'll mm -hmm. see if that um, portends, you know, a larger pattern or if this is sort of a one-off, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing the, you know, the, the degree gap, right, between the educated and the, and the sort of the non-college educated. Um, yeah, so there, there are some shifts, mm -hmm. some broader shifts, and I, I could see this carrying on for the next election cycle, but beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's always hard to tell. I mean, like, you know, for example, you think back just a few years in, in 04, right, George W. Bush made very significant inroads in the Hispanic vote, right? I mean, he gets up to, uh, I think, 43, 44% of the vote um, among the Hispanics in the 2004 election, right? That was a big moment. And it was part of a very deliberate effort on his part to to cultivate that. But that didn't have an enduring effect, right, on vote patterns. I mean, it certainly didn't carry over for John McCain and for Mitt Romney, right? So I think it's, it is one of those questions where it feels kind of speculative to answer because we just don't know, right, until we kind of see, I mean, how do the next elections go, right? To what extent are you know, these features of personal support for Trump himself and to what extent are the actual realignments? Yeah. Yeah. Some of this depends on like, well, who, who wins the white house in 2024, right? If it's a yeah. different Republican, then, you know, like yep. presidents, you know, in large part shape their party into their image with greater or lesser success, but that's, that's yep. what happens. But, but I think, you know, Republicans, I mean, there is some realignment going on and, some of the aspects of the realignment are good for them, like, you know, more inroads into, you know, the various Hispanic communities, but some are not like losing the college educated folks, right? By a lot, right? right. That is not good. Um, and they're going to have to win some of those people back because they're not going to win national elections if they don't, right? I mean, the right. last time Republicans, I mean, the Republicans have won, won a single national popular vote in the past 30 years, right? Right. Yeah. For president that's Bush in two thousand four, so for yeah for president right so that's um, that's going to be a problem for them. I mean, so they have some built-in structural advantage in like the Senate, for example, and that's yep. that's great for them, and they can continue their advantage um, because they control re sort of the redistricting process exactly. in a lot of states, and that's great for them. Um, but you know the sort of the the, the big office, the White House, um, that's. That's going to be a problem for them. So. Let me suggest that I think this last point you made is really important because the, the 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 Republicans did very well down the ballot in 2020 in in uh, state legislatures, particularly state legislatures where there was going to be some contestation over redistricting. And so, not only do Republicans have an advantage in the Senate because uh, in the Senate land votes and not people. Um, well, mm -hmm. I'm being a little bit glib, but um, the, the the fact we have two centers per state, regardless of population, gives an advantage to lower population states, uh, which are predominantly uh, Republican voting states. Um, but that's uh, but in addition to that, we're going to see more states be able to redistrict in ways that are favorable and advantageous to Republicans and not Democrats. And so I think there's a real kind of uh, uh, subtle dilemma within the Republican Party. Do we try to become a bigger tent party um, in order to um, reach out to college educated um, 
whites and to college educated uh, um, minorities? What do we, you know, like, do we try to expand that, expand that base? Or do we just say, we're gonna rely on redistricting and rely on base turnout to have an increasingly smaller voter pool that votes with increasing advantage and increasing ferocity? And one of those two things much more clearly benefits Trump and Trumpism. Yeah, and so um, that's going to be a choice that's going to be hard for the Republican Party to navigate over the next four to even eight years. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here's the thing too: like a lot of this is going to depend on how things shake out in various primaries, right? And that's that's the other big sort of structural thing we have to talk about. I mean, so you could imagine, you know, in, you know perhaps a little bit more headway um, in sort of some Republicans being able, that's the thing. So Republicans, you know, a lot of Republicans are scared of getting primaried by someone who is more Trumpy than they are, right? Mm -hmm. Or who receives Trump and Trump's endorsement or, you know, is able to attract more of the, the Trumpy base, right? Now you could see potentially a, a, you know, some candidates in some less Trumpy areas, you know, Republican candidates in some less Trumpy areas managing to thread the needle, and sort of, you know, mm -hmm. attract, you know, the college folks and attract enough of the Trumpy folks such that they're able to sort of hold off primary challenges, right? Um, and, and you know, but that's, but that's still going to have an impact on the sorts of policies and the sorts of rhetoric that they're going to support, right, in the next four years or the next two years, right? And then the other thing is, you know, so while in, a, in lower down races, you might have, you know, one or two viable primary challengers, right, for, for Senate or for a House district, um, you know, the 2024 Republican primary is going to be wide open, right? And so you could very much see a situation in which, in which you know Trump runs again, right? Um, and there's like six or ten, you know, like other Republicans who are all sort of jockeying for the non-Trump vote, right? And they split it amongst themselves, and Trump runs along, accumulating yeah. delegates. And wait, doesn't that sound like 2016? Yeah. Um, you know, and Biden did that in 2020. There was Biden, and then there was basically everyone else, right? Um, and just because how our primaries are set up and how so many people like to run for president in their, you know, in the primaries, right? Um, that could have an impact on sort of, you know, who is most likely to secure the candidacy. I do think there's an effect that Trump plays a, a secondary effect too that we should pay attention to, which is if he continues. If, I mean, if he, one one report I heard uh, on NPR was that Trump is considering declaring his candidacy for 2024 the day before the inauguration um, <laughs> to try to steal as much uh, um, as yeah. much news coverage from Biden as possible. I don't know if that's true or not, it, but it makes for a great story. Um, but I, uh, and even if, even if I was Donald Trump, even if I wasn't going to do that, I would say I was going to do that because that's yeah, a great story. Um, <laughs> I totally am, am think, wondering if he's going to do a non-concession concession in which he declares his, you know, his real yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, this election was this election was rigged. Um, the electoral, you know, the whole thing was rigged yeah. against me and I can't let that stand. So I'm running in 2024. Um, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll 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 fix it all then. Um, he'll he'll hold a rally during the inauguration. But if and when he does that, um, he might actually. But if and when he does that, uh, it is going to make it harder for Nikki Haley to raise money. It's yeah. going to make it harder for Tom Cotton to raise money because uh, big Republican donors are going to wait to see what the elephant in the room does. In this case, the Trump being elephant being Trump um, until they so they start signing checks. 
And even if he ends up not running or running poorly, which is possible, Mm -hmm. um, it might make for a really interesting, in some ways, very egalitarian primary. And traditionally, the Republican Party has not liked egalitarian primaries. They've liked to know who the anointed candidate is early on with everyone rallying behind that person. And that may not happen in 2024. Yeah. Yep. Didn't happen in 2016. Right. It didn't. It didn't. And there was there were a lot of people unhappy with that. A lot of big name Republican yeah. donors who oh, were kind of prepared to throw their weight behind yeah. um, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, right. and it didn't happen. And they're still right. they don't like how that went down. Right. And they got a, and they got a suboptimal outcome. I mean, because let's be honest, Bush or Rubio would have been better presidents than Trump in so many ways. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I wonder like if in 24, if Trump does go, I mean, how many people decide to challenge him? Do you really want to fight that fight? I mean, with a, a former president who commands such loyalty in the party, I mean, he may clear the field. Like, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I, should, I think somebody will run, but whether you get people like Tom Cotton or Nikki Haley trying, I mean, they're young, right? Like they could yeah. wait. Um, and, and maybe you have to. Yeah. And if they, and if they do, the other big thing that we haven't talked about that we'll talk about in, ne- in our next podcast is what happens if Joe Biden is a one-term president. Um, yeah. And then you're facing, you're literally looking at running against a, um, not an incumbent on the Democratic side, right? Maybe right. Kamala Harris, probably Kamala Harris, but quite possibly she, would have a, she might face a tough primary challenge. She will. Yeah. Yeah. I think she will. I mean, she's not, Harris is not that dynamic and she's got people in the party who don't love her. So unless she has a really lovely time as vice president, um, which is not usually how it goes being vice president. I mean, (laughs) I don't think she's just going to get to waltz to the nomination. No. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's a lot of moving pieces that can make the, uh, the, and and sorry to say folks, if you're listening to this, you're probably still interested in politics, but the campaign for 2024 has already started. And it's really kind of sad, right? But it is true. There's already the, polling on on this, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, which means absolutely nothing at this point. <laughs> I mean, yeah. another thing, like we have to just throw into the mix here with all this talk about Trump in 24, right? Is like you know the, the kind of mortality issue, right? Trump is an old man. I mean, it's easy to forget that he's a pretty energetic old man, but he is an old man. Um, he will be in his late 70s in 24, and <laughs> you know that that also could play into this. So, so my question is, okay. I mean, I think, I think we should probably assume he's running until he says he's right. not going to, although even then he could, because <laughs> Trump could, could do something uh, crazy and like, I'm not running, but then surprise. Um, but you know, let's just say he comes out after the 2022 midterms says, okay, I'm not running. And he's clearly got something else going like, you know, Trump TV or, or whatever, right? His yeah. avenues. But, you know, so, okay, so he's not running. What impact does he have on the Republican primary field then, right? Um, is he going to be able to play kingmaker at that point? Um, you know, what's his influence going to be? I, I could honestly see it's as formal as a Trump-produced television show, yeah. uh, like a miniseries where every Republican uh, nominee... <laughs> comes on, sits down, has a one-on-one with Trump, tells him how great he is and how influential he is and how much they're going to govern like he governed um, with him then turning to the camera and maybe even him at the end of like six or seven or eight episodes offering his endorsement. 
Yeah, right. I mean, like you know, we yeah. we kind of tossed around the not very serious but somewhat serious idea of you know kind of apprentice president edition, right? Yep. And yeah. I mean, that's a version of that, and and you could yeah. see him loving that, and especially again if he's running Trump TV and he's making profit, and boy, would that show get viewers? It would get viewers, right? Um, so <laughs> he some makes some real money off of it, probably. Yes. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he needs money right now. Can I, yeah, and can I throw that in one more thing? Th yeah. This is one more reason for him to keep running for president. He yeah. has a lot of debt, not just personal debt from his own business enterprises, which apparently is extensive, but he has campaign debt that he yeah. needs to retire. And one way to retire that campaign debt is to keep running so that yeah. you can get more campaign contributions uh, to to pay off what the 2020 race. So yeah. I, I for that reason, if nothing else, I would expect him to continue running. Oh yeah, and it's not just like paying off those. It's also like you know you can loop that into your 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 personal finances. You're not technically allowed to transfer money over, but you, why can't you hold campaign events at your your locations and create these sort of financial boondoggles for yourself, right? Because like yeah. oh, Trump Hotel is hosting this, and we're paying Trump Hotel ginormous right, yeah. amount of money, right? I mean, so there's yeah, I, I, that's absolutely true. I think. I mean, it beats paying even all the total landscaping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, all the nefarious stuff aside, I mean, just running allows him to sort of maintain like his brand image and its prominence. Right. Like, and, yeah. and that's, that's good for him. And, and I mean, if Trump is anything else other than personality, it's about brand. It's about image. Yep. Right. Yep. So. Yep. All right, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, unfortunately <laughs> we have to head off to. Sort of. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't love like I don't relish the idea like of Trump taking this role on. So like, I don't really okay. love what I'm talking about. That let me let me let me let me oh, rephrase. Yeah. Let me sum up. Um, it has been fun to see your faces. Uh, this has been an, a weird semester where we've been not nearly as connected to each other as we normally are, um, and. There's a lot of a lot of lingering questions here about the future of the Republican Party. Um, I always, I you know, I as a political scientist, I think that in our, the way our system is constructed, it naturally functions better when we have two healthy, robust political yeah. parties. And so um, I'm rooting for that on, on both sides. But um, yeah, it's going to be. I think the next four years are going to be fascinating for the Republican Party. <laughs> And, uh, and and the Democratic Party too, and I mean oh, this yeah. is a preview yep. of next time. But I yeah. mean, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be basically a, probably a civil war in both parties about what what approach each party is supposed to take. You yep. know, for the GOP, yep. you know, is it Trump, or do we try to bail out, right? Or right. and for for the Democrats, you know, is it like do we try to continue hard left and not play ball with Republicans, um, you know, or are we going to try to you know compromise and realize that it's the progressive policy policy proposals from the past two or three years that have really sunk us in some ways. So, yeah, right. 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 Well, as you might have noticed, the uh, the House of Representatives controlled by the Democrats are currently voting to decriminalize marijuana for the country. So I, that there's part of your answer right there, at least for at least for today. Um, well, that's a fairly popular position. I mean, there's yeah. there's Republicans yeah. that are more with that. So. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's actually pretty consistent with like the libertarian wing of the Republican Party, for example. Right. Like, True. So true, and the, and of course the legal marijuana now, folks in Minnesota who did exactly all this yeah. last election, about one in twenty Minnesotans love them. So, um, <laughs> yay, democracy. yay democracy! Yay <laughs> democracy! That is the classic single issue vote. <laughs> all right, guys, we got to go. Um, thanks for listening, folks. You can always get a hold of us 
at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Um, we, we love doing this and we love that we get positive feedback from you all too. So um, you can uh, please, you can always reach out to the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the channel. Uh, even as we speak, uh, we're beginning season two of Avatar with Academics. And uh, there's Tweet Victory, there's Bookish at Bethel, there's Video Store, lots of other great things. I hear rumors there might even be a holiday special in the works. So mm -hmm. stay tuned. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Until you hear my voice again, go Royals.